I would like us to start reading in 1 Corinthians 21. And we're going to read this chapter. We'll read another chapter and then we'll begin our discussion. First, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles. Did I say Corinthians? 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Verse, starting in verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity, and he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and David lifted his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces, and David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now, if you could turn over to 2 Samuel 24, and we have a restatement of what we just read in, in 1 Chronicles, and I'll just read a few verses of it. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Job, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. If we were in a class environment, I would probably pick on the kid that looks like he's asleep and, said, and ask him, What did you just notice about these two passages we read? And the kid that's asleep probably won't notice anything, but the nerdy kid in the front row would say, Jim, in First Chronicles, it says that Satan enticed David to number the people. 
But in 2 Samuel, it says God enticed David to number the people. So we have what looks to be a conflict between these two chapters. And now if this nerdy kid would, would uh, read the rest of the chapters, he would see that there's some other things in there, that there seems to be some tension between the text. How would we answer that? And I think generally speaking, it falls into like four schools of thought. One of them we, we would dismiss out of hand. The liberal would come to us and say, well, these two texts clearly have mistakes. So somebody made a mistake here. And we can dismiss that right out of hand. The Word of God is inspired by God. And we would expect the perfect God to be perfect in His Word. In, in uh, Psalm 12.6, it said, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in His furnace of the ground, purified seven times. So here's my point. The liberal that comes to you and says, the reason that there's tension in the text here is because there are mistakes in the Bible, we would dismiss that right out of hand. The Word of God is inerrant. The Word of God has no mistakes. It comes from a per perfect God. The Word of God is perfect. So other, other, another approach to this, well, okay, Jim, the Word of God is perfect in the way that it was re originally revealed, but that was a long, long time ago. And so in the transmission of the text, some guy was copying the book of, of uh, First Chronicles, and he went and he changed the word. Well, first of all, that's not how, how it really works. If you go through, and, and, and it happens, go home one day and, and, and copy a page out of the Bible, and then see if you made some mistakes. And, and you probably would. There would be a spelling mistake or something like that. But that's not what transmissions mistakes look like. First of all, if you look at them, there's not very many of them. And then they're very easy to tell because they're like spelling mistakes or something like that. This is not what transmission mistakes look like. You can, you can go back and look. The Word of God is the most widely attested in, in the, the ancient manuscripts, the most widely attested book that's out there. People don't realize it, and I get tickled pink when I listen to liberals that talk about, well, we don't know that we have the Word of God. Those same, same guys will say, I, I, I think it's Plato's Republic, that the earliest manuscript we have is from, from like 600, 700 A.D. We have the Word of God going all the, back, all the way back to the B.C.s. There's wide agreement. You can hold up your Bible and with very good confidence say, this is the Word of God. Pastor Bray, 10 years ago, did a long series on the transmission of the text and what that looks like. If you go back there and look, in, I'm sure it's on Sermon Audio, he'd have copies of it. You can go and study this out and you will see that the chances of, of a scribe going in and changing First Chronicles from, from God to Satan, it did not happen. So we can dismiss that. Another, another way that this tension can be resolved, and this is actually catching on in, in even conservative circles. If you look at, at Hebrew words, a lot of times they're used as names. So let me give you an example. You remember Moses, and he's taken the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they come to a place called Mara. And why was it called Mara? Because the water that they got there was bitter, and that was the miracle that happened there. They said the, water, the waters were bitter, the waters were Mara, so the place is called Mara. The word is bitter. When, when we look at the story of Ruth, Naomi comes back, and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. That the words are used like that. 
Uh, another example, Jacob. We look in Jacob in Genesis. Jacob can be mean, you can back your way into Jacob meaning deceiver. So Esau, when Esau and Jacob are, 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 are having their confrontation, Esau says to Jacob, well is your, well is your name Jacob because you just deceived me. When Jeremiah, which you just read, I guess, if you're on Paul's bus, it says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The word there is Jacob. The heart is Jacob. It's named after an attribute. So the word Satan, if you look at the word Satan, it, it means adversary. And in the Old Testament, particularly in the, old, the older old part, parts of the Older Testament, say in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, you remember Balaam, and he's, he's taking his donkey, and the angel of the Lord steps in front of him. In that verse, you know, at Numbers 22, verse 22, there's a word that says, and the angel of the Lord was his adversary. That is, the angel of the Lord was his Satan. And so what some guys are doing to, to relieve this tension is saying that, that what the writer is doing here is saying that God was acting as an adversary of David. I don't buy it. Let me give you another example. If you remember, if you read through the book of Judges and you, you hear all the time about the, them worshiping the Baals, and with the B-A-A-L in our Bible, where, where they worship the Baals, and we look at that, and we think, okay, that's God. Well, actually, it's the word Lord. And, and, it, and it became so associated with, with the idol worship that, that it became like that, where people started thinking of Baals as the idols. Well, originally, the, the whole idea of the word Baal was Lord. And you get a sense how, how the connotation, the baggage that the word held. You can read Meshibosheth. If you look back into your the footnotes of your Bible, some of this, the text will say Meshiba Baal. Meshibosheth was also Meshiba Baal. And the, the, the word Baal had so much, so much baggage to it that it changed. Here's my point. Chronicles were written, written 500 B.C., you know, a little, a little before 500 B.C. At this time, the whole idea of Satan and, and the, the title, The Satan, was so well developed. If you read in your New Testament, we read about Satan all the time, but there's never a chance where somebody sits down and explains what's going on. So here's my point. I'm, su I'm suggesting that by the time the Chronicles were written in 500 B.C., there was an absolutely no ambiguity, 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 ambiguity to the word Satan in their mind. They, they, the, what I'm saying is the text is exactly as God intended it. And we're reading it exactly as God intended it. So, so what's going on there? Think back in the garden with me. God creates the world. And he creates Adam. And he creates Eve. And what did he say about the, this creation? It is very good. And, and Adam and Eve are in this garden and there's a, a tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a, certain, a serpent comes to Eve and entices her and tempts her and says, take it, eat it. You, you'll, you'll start, you, you, does God not want you, God's trying to keep you from being like him. And he tempts Eve, and we know the story. Adam and Eve, they fail. With, with the certain serpent being right there tempting them. Paul brought up Job. Interesting, in, that this, in the sense 
that we see a conversation between God and Satan. And God says to Satan, and it doesn't, he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then we see what happens. Job is tried by Satan, and, and Satan comes and he oppresses him. First he takes his family, and he takes his houses, and he takes it. And then eventually he says, Job, Satan comes to God and says, well, let me get after his body. And then he starts being, he starts hitting his flesh, his very body. And, and, and whereas Job, he, he struggles with how he reacts to this and he gets angry and all of this, all of this thing. Job's, Job's reaction is not perfect. And if you go to the very end of the book, you see Job repent from the way that he reacted to God. But at the very beginning, we see that Satan has this interaction with God and that, and he goes after Job. Uh, if we, we keep working our, our way through the text, Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, where we have, have Joshua, the high priest, standing before God, and it says that Satan is there to accuse him. We're used to thinking of that. If we move into the, the New Testament, Luke twenty two thirty one. do you remember what, what, what Jesus says to Peter before the, he goes to trial? Peter says, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stick with you. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Simon, Simon, Satan is asking to sift you. If you go through the rest of the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the people are contributing their land. And what does it say that Satan here, let me just read it, Acts 5, 3, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Then we, we have... At references to Satan all through the, through the New Testament uh, epistles. Let me read a handful of them. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, talking about the relationship between a man and a woman. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. First Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about his travel plans being impacted by Satan. We are used to thinking about Satan in those terms when it comes to the biblical text. <laughs> a guy once said, a smart guy, said that the charismatics have taken the Holy Spirit away from us. And what he meant by that is that we see so much abuse from the television preachers about their, their teaching and, and the way they, they interact with the Holy Spirit, the, the wild healing services and the self-aggrandizement, that the Holy Spirit, discussion of the Holy Spirit is almost out of the church today. And, and I think there's probably some truth to that. I think the same thing deals with Satan. 
We've seen Hollywood portrayals of Satan, John Milton portrayals of Satan, right? We've seen all of this that a lot of times in some ways we, Christians almost become materialist in the way we think about Satan in the sense that, that we, don't, we don't think about the world in the same way that, say, Paul did. Paul says, you, you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. What does Peter say? Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil. Look, the, the, the whole concept of Satan was front and center in New Testament and Old Testament theology. They thought as the, the very work in Satan being real. And I think there's a real good, good, good lesson in that for us is that we need to think also, we, it's so easy for us to start thinking almost in materialistic terms, that all we see is all there is. It reminds me of Elisha over in the book of Kings, and Elisha's surrounded by servants, by, by soldiers, I'm sorry, that, that are out to get him. And he's calm and relaxed, and, and his servant looks at him and says, Elisha, are you an idiot? <laughs> He doesn't say that. That's Jim's translation of the Hebrew. But he says, look at this. These guys are everywhere. We're about to get smashed. And Elisha, what does Elisha say? Praise. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he can see. And then he saw the armies of the Lord around him. Sometimes I think some version of that would be very good for Christians. That we, we see each other. We see, the, see what's going on out there in politics. We see churches and pastors falling. We see all of this stuff, and we see it in very human terms. And the reality is, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. There, there's a spiritual warfare going out there. Every crisis that we have, there's a spiritual battle going on. So we think of it, of, that, of the devil in those terms. All that being said, look at what we just talked about. Go back to the garden with me. Adam and Eve, the, per, the, the, the very good creation. And then you had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sitting right there. Who put that tree there? God. That tree was put there by the providence and by the decree. God put that tree there. Look at Job. We, 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 we think about Job and we say, okay, Satan attacked him. Could Satan have gotten to first base without the blessing and permission of God Almighty? No. What happened to Job happened with the full allowance, can I even say the decree of God. If you look at, if you, you turn, turn, turn after the garden, we get into the life of Abraham. You look at Abraham. In chapter 12, God makes this fantastic promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And then what immediately happens? Abraham's fleeing a famine. And I think a lot of times we read, you know, famine. Well, Abraham's got a famine right there. And we, we kind of take the edge off it. No, he's going hungry. You want to see me get cranky? Let me go hungry. Those were real problems that Abraham was fleeing. Abraham at that point was fleeing. He goes in there and he lies about who his wife is. So we had this test. Now, let me ask you this. And the answer is obvious. Who decided that there would be a famine? 
God. And we, we go on, we read a few more chapters, and, and, and Sarah and Abraham, and I don't know, it makes me wonder just how much brights Abraham had. He brought another woman into his relationship. I don't know how you're going to keep them both in there anyway, happy, but and sure enough, it becomes a conflict. But before we get too hard on Abram, God makes a promise in chapter 12, chapter 15, 16. We haven't seen anything yet. We've seen nothing yet. They're getting old. So, so is there any more, anything more discouraging to a woman that wants a child than to not have that child? That's real pain. You, look, oh, you keep going into chapter 20. Abraham makes another mistake, traveling around, and he goes to another king, and he, and he tells the king, just like he did in chapter 12, he tells, okay, what we're going to do, Sarah, and I don't know how this one would work in a relationship. Sarah, what we're going to do is instead of telling him you're my wife, we're going to tell him that you're my sister. does it twice. And then so we read in, in, in Genesis 22 where he makes that great... The, the great sacrifice where, where he's, he, he takes Isaac and he's taken him on the mountain. And we read that. If we read in the very first verse, we say, After these things, God tested Abraham to him and said, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and, and offer him that burnt offering in the one of the mountains that I shall tell you. So we go to Abraham in chapter 22 and we see Abraham make this incredibly great sacrifice, the kid that is supposed to be the one that he makes a great nation out of, and Abraham says, I'll do it. And we've met, look at that. Look at the father of the faithful. Read the first 10 chapters. Abraham is doing something that is completely uncharacteristic of what Abraham was doing before that. And here's my point. So would I. So would I. If I'm faced with famine that God providentially puts in my life, I may fail. If, if, if God makes a promise to me and my wife is 80, and, and, and it hasn't happened, I might start looking for alternative means. Look at, the, look at Moses, and Moses is guiding the children of Israel out, out of the land of Egypt. They get over the Red Sea, and immediately they run into trouble. They start getting thirsty. They start getting hungry. You ever been around a cranky kid that's hungry and thirsty? Those are real problems, and those are all problems that were within the providence of God. How did they respond? Well, they responded, they responded miserably. But my point is all this. When we look in the garden, we look at Job, we look at Abraham, we look at Moses, God was constantly putting things in their life that would give them an occasion to stumble. So when we come to the passages that we looked at in 1 Samuel 24, uh, 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. When we look at those passages and we say, who, who, who was sovereign there? Who was in charge? Who tested David? Was it Satan or was it God? I think the chroniclers understood what they were doing there. And the answer they came up with was yes. That there we have both Satan and, and God. Satan under the sovereign control of God testing them. And that brings us to a question that, that we, we need to think. So how, how do we think about that testing? And, I, and, and Pastor Bray describes when we start thinking about scriptures as seeing it through a grid. And so whenever we think about God's testing, and some, some places it'll say God tempting, we need to think of it as the grid of James 1.13, right? 
God cannot be tempted with evil. What? Neither tempts He any man. So we, so we can't think of this in, in terms of God doing that. Look at Deuteronomy 8.2, and I think this is, is key. Deuteronomy 8.2. And how we go about understanding how all of this fits together. Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now then, whenever we say God, God is testing them to know what's in their hearts, we also have to run that through the grid. We have to run that through the grid of God's omniscience. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things that, that those of long ago, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I may know the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I make known the end from the beginning. The testing of God isn't some kind of fact-finding mission where God's okay. Let, let me test out Jim and see how he's going to respond here. God knows. God knows what's going to happen. What it does, it draws out these testings, this it draws out what's in my heart. Let me read some passages. And when you run it through the grid, it makes perfect sense. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Chronicles 32, 27, the story of Hezekiah. So, so think 300 years later after we, this, this episode we see with David. Hezekiah's run a good kingdom. Things are going right. He becomes proud and he brings in the, the Babylonians. And Hezekiah had very great Richard riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels. Storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possession. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the water of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David, and, he and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Listen, and so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And we know how that turned out. Hezekiah told, told the guys of Babylon, come in, look around, see what you like. And, and we know that later, that, and even God said, this is going to be a problem for you. Actually, he said, it's going to be a problem for your sons. And Hezekiah, crazily enough, said, well, it's at least not me. But God, God put this spirit of pride. There was this spirit of pride in Hezekiah. And God, and God said, I'll leave him to himself just to show him what's in his heart, the pride that's in his heart. Exodus 16.4, Then Mo, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I look at these stories. I look at Adam and Eve. I look at Abraham. I look at the children of Israel. 
and I, 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 I'm, I'm slow to, 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 to condemn them, and I say that because of this. I know my own heart. God has put things in my life that, that have been a test. I've, I've told this story a gazillion times, and, it, and it's probably getting old, but Terry and I were putting out babies literally whenever we wanted to put out babies. And uh, I think, and, and I, my, I've grown in my thinking on this, that thinking that it's time, you know, that I get to schedule babies is nuts. But when Jared was born, we, we decided, and this was very immature thinking for Stephen B. here, but we said, I think we want to have a baby. And Jared was conceived three weeks later. I mean, it came that easy for us. And uh, we, we became so proud. I said, okay, well, I think we'll have time to have another baby. So we had Jared and Jonathan. And, and, and we, we started putting out babies whenever we want, and we became man, we've got this under control. And God had to take one. And I was mad. And I was angry. And Terry was crying. You know, it, it, it was a mess. And, but, I, but in that, what happened, in that, what that just awful experience, is God showed me the pride that was in my heart. And, and God showed me how, how quick I am to get angry with God over something that he did. And I, I, it was one of these days I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to see the Lord. And Jesse, probably Jesse, I mean, I guess there's a slim chance that it could be Lord Nicole, could, is going to walk up to me and say, Dad, you were an idiot. This is what God had to do to teach you. And that's exactly right. But in that trial... I was, I, God showed me so much about myself. Uh, and and your, your kids have, have, have heard me say this a thousand times in teen, teen Sunday school. There's no heroes in the Bible except for Christ. The whole point of the Old Testament is that when God puts something in their, in their way, if he puts a tree, if he puts a famine, if he puts something where the way's not clear, almost inevitably... They're going to fail. They're going to fail. Just, just a, a, a painful observation. When uh, uh, So many times we think that when God shows us something about ourselves, it has to be something negative. I find in my own life it's just as easy. If everything's going right, my bank account's full, and my wife is happy, my kids are doing what they're supposed to do, I almost take almost a self-assurance of myself. And it, it's almost like, like when God, God shows me something, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. They can just as easily be a positive thing that I warp that thing and mess it up and so that, 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 that even the good things in life can draw out of my life what, <laughs> what, 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 what's, what my heart really looks like. Here's my point. I'm comfortable saying that I failed in my life in this room. You know why? Because I can say assuredly, reading the entire Old Testament, seeing that everybody else did, everybody else in this room has experienced something exactly like I have, where God put something in front of you, and you took it. God put, put some circumstances in your life, and you didn't react properly. God, God put some kind of test, and you failed. That's true of every last one of us. With, with all the confidence of Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I can say every last one of us at some point have failed. 
Review with me. In the garden, God made the garden. What else did God also put in the garden? He put the, he put, put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see the role of the serpent in the garden. At Job, we look at the book of Job. What do we have? We have this testing. Did Job act perfectly in this testing? No, he did not. Uh, was Satan involved? Satan was absolutely involved. Was God involved? Yeah, God was over all of it. If we look at the life of Abraham, we, did, did God put testing in, in his life? Absolutely. Was Satan involved? Well, it's not mentioned specifically, but Peter tells us the devil's walking around as a warring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the, the idea that while it's not mentioned specifically in Abraham, Abraham's life, we can know for sure that Satan was involved. We, we see in the wilderness where the trials that were put on there, where did those trials come from? Well, God, God made the famine. God made the land dry. God made those people go without food. Was Satan involved? It doesn't say it specifically, but we can say because Satan's walking about as a roaring lion, we can say assuredly that Satan's in, Satan is involved. So when we come to David, and we're specifically told that the, that the devil was involved, but under the con sovereign control of God. Now we're ready to read our text. Turn to Matthew, and that was all introduction, but the, the next part is short. Turn to Matthew 4. Remember the elements. God, God's in control. Satan is involved, and there's a test. Now let's, let's read, read Matthew 4 again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered it, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angel came and were ministering to him. Did you see the three elements involved here? He was led by what? The Spirit of God. Into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tested by the devil. And he was tested there. And for the first time in the history of mankind, God, the God-man, a man stood against the wiles of the devil. I, I, I find it remarkable that it all culminates, almost all, the, all we read in the Old Testament, all these failures, temptations, the, the, the whole thing is almost like begging, we're like, come on, somebody make it, somebody get through there, somebody stand up to this guy, and through the entire Old Testament, nobody does. Matthew 4, God 
the Holy Spirit moves Jesus into a position where he could be tested. Here comes Satan and, 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 and the Son of God. The, the, and, and, and we need to remember that he's God, a very God, but the Son of God says no. And the devil flees for the first time. And there, for the first time, a man has earned life, right? He earns it that, that Jesus Christ was the fir, first very God, but man, he earned life by his own right. Let's go back, though. Was he in the garden? Was he in Job? Was he with Abraham? Think about this with me for a second. Adam and Eve fail. And God comes to him. And in and, and, and Genesis 3.15, we're told, told that the serpent's head, his, his head is going to be crushed. But in the process of this, this whole thing, what does God do? He, he, he slays an animal, a, a lamb. He clothes Adam and Eve in clothes that aren't their own, in, in, in robes that aren't their own. Why? At the very beginning, we see the need for an atonement. A substitute. And so the, so so Christ, the one that goes to the desert so many years later and stands firm and earns the right to life. We see a picture of him all the way back in the garden where 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 God says, You need a substitute. Adam and Eve need somebody else to stand before me because they can't. They they destroy that right. If you look at Job. Interesting thing that Paul brought that up. So you look at Job, and, and he does. He said in Job 9.2, what, what does Job say? He says, who, who, who can stand in the right before God? And then later on he says, what is 17, verse 7? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Look, Job, he looks at that and he says, I, I can't stand here in my own. If you go all the way to the end of the chapter, in Job, interesting, really interesting, actually. It's one of those things, I've, I've read the book of Job for years and years and years, and when you look at it, the, the book of Job is just chock full of Christ and the gospel. You look at the very end, and Job is redeemed. Job is forgiven by God. And then he's, he, then God turns his attention to the friends that had given him all this bad advice, and what does he say? You go to Job and take him, take him a sacrifice. Take him to seven lamps. Now, can the, can the, the blood of gold bulls and goats ever make an atonement for sin? No, they cannot. Some, we're, we're picturing something different. But Job is, is told, take it to Job. Is that interesting to me? Because we all need a mediator. Even Job was saying later, early in the book, he says, who, who can stand? And then, in a sense, a, a, a cleaned up version of, of Job is almost serving as a priest for his friends, bringing them to God. But in, that's all in the context of a sacrifice, an atonement, the Lamb of God. Abraham, when, 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 he, when he actually goes in chapter 22 and he's had, all this, he's had this crazy life of so many failures and then he goes and, he, say, and he, he takes Isaac up to sacrifice. Why? Because he knows good and well he needs a sacrifice. He needs somebody in his place. Well, a, a, a lamb won't do the trick. A goat won't do, a, do the trick. And I think Abraham understood that. 
but but he goes almost as a symbol of what's going to happen later on the, down the road when John the Baptist says, look, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Look, that Lamb of God was the Lamb of God that earned life on his own merit. And he stood in the place of Abraham who earned death. We go all the way through. So we go to David. Look at the life that David has done. David was an adulterer, a murderer. Look at the calamity that he caused the people of Israel right here where, where he's had thousands of people die because of his pride. He wanted to pump up David and, 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 and the, it cost the people their lives. But David could stand before God. Psalm 32, blessed is he who what? His sins are forgiven. None of us have any reason to think that we can stand in front of the Almighty, the Holy God, on our own merit. Every last one of us have been tested. And this testing has been under the sovereignty, control of God, has, it, has Satan been? Yeah, Satan's been there to tempt us. But let me tell you, the thing that Satan made me do it is nothing more than a misunderstanding of the very nature of man. I'll sin on my own, thank you very much. I don't need Satan to do it for me. But Satan is there pushing. And I failed. And I failed again. And I failed again. And I have absolutely no reason to think that I can stand before the Almighty, the Holy God, in my own righteousness. I need a substitute. 1 John 2, 2. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. The one that stood up to the devil and said, no, and the devil fled. First guy ever. He earned the title, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then it says, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And when, when he says the propitiation for our sins, that same word that's used, propitiation, if you go back to the tabernacle, the mercy seat that was sitting on top of the ark of God. And what's under, what, what did we keep in the ark of God? They kept, they kept the law, the manna, and the rod, Aaron's rod. But there's a law in there. And when Christ sees me in of myself, he sees a lawbreaker. But that mercy seat sat over the law. So he is the propitiation for our sins. When God looked down at the mercy seat, he saw his law, but what did he see it through? He saw it through Jesus Christ, the propitiation. He saw Christ. Me, who earned death, Christ took on himself the penalty that was me. At the same time, Jesus Christ, the righteous, imputed to me the victory that he won in the desert. When Christ sees me, he's, when God the Father sees me, he sees Christ. I, I, I think there's something for us there. We, we sang the song today. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within That's all of us, right? 
upward I looked and seen him there. So, so I think that there's a sense there, there, when we look at all of these guys, put ourselves in that spot. I failed. I failed in the garden. I failed in the wilderness. I failed in my own life. But I won in the desert through Christ. I deserve death in the garden. I deserve death in the wilderness. I deserve death in my own life. But Christ took that death from me and put it on himself. So that's one thing. The other thing is this. God works in our own lives and the circumstances of our life. And he puts things in our life to draw out of us what's in our heart. And what do we like, tend to do? We tend to look at them as no more than bad circumstances. Probably the person who knows me best, sitting over there, Terry, knows that I am probably the worst at that. Okay, this is something I need to fix. This is something, okay, I, I get me out of this problem. Wait a minute. Every crisis, every crisis, every problem that comes into my life, every crisis is a spiritual crisis. Every problem is a spiritual problem. God is using that problem. God is using that crisis. God is using that situation to teach me more about myself and to draw me, drive me to the cross. That's the point of everything that goes on in our life is to drive us to the cross, to drive us to Christ. Don't ever open your eyes and see what's going on. I implore you, I implore myself, Quit looking at circumstances as being nothing more than circumstances. There's something else going on here. And that something else is to teach us more about ourselves and to teach us more about Christ. And, when, and then one more thing before I close. I would be remiss to say that those of, uh, of you thus, men, that don't know Christ, if you, you just read through the book of Jeremiah, there's a phrase in there that talks about Jeremiah being faithful to his covenant, God being faithful to his covenant. And Jeremiah uses the phrase, as the sun rises in the east, God will be faithful to his covenant. I can tell you just assuredly, as the sun rises in the east, every last one of us are going to stand before of the almighty God. And we're going to stand there in our own righteousness, or we're going to stand in, stand there in front of in, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is the righteous. I don't care how proud or confident you are in yourself today. I can assuredly tell you that the day's coming where you're going to face the Almighty and every knee, every knee, the most confident, strongest knees in this life is going to bow before, this, before the Almighty God of the universe. I would be remiss to say that if you are not Standing before God in the, in the righteousness of Christ, you will not stand before Him at all. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll sing a song. Our Father, we thank You for these truths. You see us, You know our hearts. You've seen the failures. You've seen us respond to tests and it's nothing special. It's nothing that's not common to man. And you've seen us fall. But then you saw your own son. 
stand and take the title Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then you put on him, him that knew no sin, you put on him our condemnation, our death. We pray that we'll live our lives in the light of your gospel. In your name, amen.